0: If you're uh, finding it harder to make ends meet or facing the horrors of trying to get yourself into secure housing or affording healthcare, or maybe you're feeling a bit nervous about the future as the war in Ukraine drags on and tensions rise between the West and China, then you're not very different to most people around the world. So what are the answers to the problems we face globally, like the cost of living, inflation, climate change? My guest is a long-time friend of the program, and he's been thinking deeply about these issues for a very long time. Yanis Varoufakis is leader of the Democracy in Europe movement in Greece's parliament, where he was uh, formerly, of course, finance minister. And he's also a professor of economics at the University of Athens. He was recently invited to both Cuba and Mexico to discover the possibilities of a new way forward. So it's time to get him back to tell us how his visits went. Yanis, welcome home. But first, please an update on the plight of Julian Assange.
1: Uh, Julian's plight, Philip, as you know very well, is continuing. He's fading in a tiny cell in the Belmarsh uh, version of Britain's Guantanamo Bay. Uh, The extradition order is hanging over him. Our only hope at this stage is that there is some kind of understanding between Albanese, the Australian Prime Minister, and Biden. The campaign is um, gathering pace. I don't believe there is any um, decently thinking person in the world who doesn't want Julian's ordeal to end. Uh, All of us uh, who have been on his side for many years uh, have... uh, Um, I I, I would have been very encouraged by what uh, the President of Mexico, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, said to me uh, 10 days ago in Mexico City, that he's uh, doing his utmost to convince the United States to let go, to stop torturing a man whose only crime is to have informed us of crimes performed by our governments, supposedly in our name.
0: Giannis, what were your first impressions of Cuba because it was your first visit?
1: Cuba is going through the worst period in, in its history since the Cuban Revolution. Uh, the port is barren. The embargo is harsher than ever, Philip. Uh, there is no way of sending money into Cuba. No remittances since Donald Trump completely overturned Barack Obama's attempts to loosen the embargo. Uh, The place looks uh, dilapidated, there is no doubt that this is a massive economic crisis. But I have to tell you, um, I was thinking while I was walking in the streets of Havana, that compared to my town, Athens, Athens looks much richer, more developed. But you know what, Philip? I look at the faces of people walking around Athens after 13 years of power crisis here, They look mostly dispossessed, humiliated. Our democracy a sham. Whereas when I looked at the faces of people in Havana, you know what I saw, I saw pride. I saw smiles, beautiful music, solidarity. They are managing to squeeze a very high quality, first world quality of life out of a total catastrophe. Don't forget that they have one of the best health systems in the world. They managed to develop three very successful vaccines on their own under this embargo during the pandemic. Uh, they have first-class education. Their doctors, engineers, um, you know, um, philologists uh, have a level of education that, uh, in Australia and in Greece and in Europe, um, you know, we can only envy. So it is a mixed
0: bag. Is the, uh, Biden offering any sort of olive branch like uh, Obama did?
1: It Frustratingly, absolutely not. Uh, in 2015, I had an opportunity to have a discussion with Obama during the last months of his presidency. And of course, back then I was the finance minister of Greece and I was uh, concerned about Greece. And, you know, he essentially said to me that he's a lame duck president. It was the last few months in in office in the White House. But he said to me that there are two things that he wants to do before he leaves the presidency. One was to de-escalate tensions with Iran and end the standoff between the West and Iran uh with uh, that treaty you will recall regarding the denuclearization of iran and the second thing he said he wanted to do was to end the and that's quoting barack obama the um very harsh embargo on cuba and i have to say that he did both but then of course donald trump came, came in and overturned both successes of Obama, some of the very few successes of the Obama administration, he overturned them in a jiffy. And the great frustration is that Obama's vice president at the time it becomes president of the United States and does absolutely nothing to um, put right both those debacles, the standoff between the United States the West and Iran, and the embargo of Cuba.
0: Is this because his fear of someone living in Florida?
1: Look, you have to ask his administration. Uh, but it would have been quite straightforward for somebody like Joe Biden to simply say, look, folks, I'm simply doing that which Barack Obama did in the last few months of office. If you look at the way in which... Setting aside Iran and Cuba for a moment. Joe Biden is jeopardizing world peace and our future as a species by turbocharging the new Cold War that Donald Trump started against China. Remember, last October, Joe Biden effectively issued a declaration of total economic warfare against China. That was the microchip embargo. When you tell a country like China that I'm going to do my utmost to prevent you from acquiring advanced microchips, not just for your military, but for any use in your country, effectively you're telling China that I am going to ensure you do not become a technologically advanced country. (laughs) Whoever says that to China is declaring an economic war against China. So it's not just Assange. It is not just Cuba, it's not just Iran, there's also China. Joe Biden's foreign policy is a complete catastrophe in the sense that he did not um, roll back or roll back Donald Trump's uh, adventurism. Instead of that, he turbocharged it.
0: Well, you've been saying that the US is leading a, quote, new audacious imperialism, which you call neo-imperialism.
1: Well, yes, he's been doing this since 1971, (laughs) since your great friend, Richard Nixon, remember 15th August, 1971, Richard Nixon did something that was smart from his perspective, and maybe it could not have been done otherwise. Uh, Our uh, listeners will recall that between 1944 and 1971, we had a very strange global monetary system. Um, It was a version of the gold standard, which was a dollar standard, effectively, All are currencies, the Australian dollar, the Greek drachma, the French franc were, had a fixed exchange rate with the dollar, which had a fixed exchange rate with gold. Gold in Fort Knox, in the New York Federal Reserve vaults underground. If you had $35, you could exchange it for an ounce of American gold. Well, that could, could not continue <laughs> because America had become a deficit country. So when you're in a deficit when the United States was in deficit, let's say, to France, dollars were flowing into France. And then maybe you will recall a certain gentleman, uh, President Pompidou of France, who sent a frigate full of American dollars to New Jersey to exchange them for American gold. That ended. Now, why is this connected to my story about neo-imperialism? Well, because the moment the convertibility of dollars to gold stopped, ended on the 15th of August, 1971, by Richard Nixon, both the private sector and the central banks of the West, including Australia, would no longer convert their dollars, American dollars into gold. So they had to use America's currency as the reserves on which the Australian dollar, the French franc, the Deutsche Mark, and so on, um, you know, drew their value from. So in a sense, The Americans were increasing their imports from the rest of the world that they couldn't pay for because they were increasingly in the red, in a deficit. But the rest of the world's capitalists, German capitalists, Japanese capitalists, and later Chinese capitalists, who were amassing all those dollars, had no alternative but to send their dollars back to Wall Street to invest them in real estate, in derivatives, in American debt, and so on. Now, that is a remarkable form of imperialism in the sense that the empire... has managed to increase its capacity to live off other people's labor and have the capitalists of the rest of the world, the wealthy of the rest of the world, send their loot, (laughs) their profits, back to the metropolis. You know, the Roman Empire never succeeded in doing this. The British Empire never succeeded in doing that. America managed it. And now we have, for the first time, a possibility of a challenge to this. And this challenge is coming from China because of the development of a new form of wealth creation, which is, as you know, um, based on the cloud with cloud computing, with um, uh, algorithmic capital, with a new form of capital, which China is pretty good at producing against the combined forces of Silicon Valley and Wall Street.
0: Well, that's an extraordinary thing to contemplate. Let's go back to uh, Mexico and Cuba. They've always had a, well, been a, in a sort of political brotherhood and you've already mentioned your uh, your admiration for the, n- the new Mexican president. How are they coping with the problems we're all facing to a greater or lesser degree?
1: Philip? to the extent that you know me, um, I'm not an easy customer. (laughs) I I had a fantastic conversation with uh, President López Obrador. He's a brilliant man and he's extremely charismatic. But, you know, I I also stated my points of disagreement with him because I do believe that friends and comrades have to be frank. So his commitment to fossil fuels is not one that I can live happily with. So we had a little, um, let's say, brisk exchange on this. But I have to tell you, that um, he really, truly impressed me, not only because of his very brave support of a mutual friend, Julian Assange, but because, look, he has the whole of the oligarchic establishment in Mexico against him. The press, the media, radio, television, and so on, except for the state-owned ones, are totally against him. Like It reminded me of how I felt when I was in the, in the government here in 2015, the whole of the gamut of the press against us. And it's amazing how he deals with it. I don't know whether you know that, but the president of Mexico holds a press conference. This is quite daunting. Every morning at 7.30, Philip, he holds a two-hour press conference every morning, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He's got all these journalists from uh, media that are very hostile to him and he says to them, okay, fire away, tell me what I've done wrong. And he has a two hour televised live, Mexicans have their breakfast (laughs) watching their president have it out live on television with uh, inimical
0: journalists. And there are occasions- Excuse me, Giannis, do they actually watch?
1: Absolutely. It is, uh, it, it, it is a great show every morning because he puts on a great show. He engages with his critics from the press. He treats them with respect. And sometimes, often, almost every week, when there is an issue where he can't convince them, where it is, it, it's an important issue, let's say, for instance, uh, you know, regarding the price of uh, petrol at the petrol stations or uh, other issues that, Emerge spontaneously during these discussions with the press. You know what he does? He says, okay, all right, so you believe X and I believe Y. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to conduct an opinion poll today. There is a state-sponsored and supposedly quite well-respected opinion poll company. Uh, I'm going to ask them to poll the nation, X or Y. Do they agree with you or do they agree with me? And by tomorrow we have the result, and I commit that whatever the people tell us through the opinion poll company that they want, this is what's going to happen tomorrow morning in the Congress.
0: Well, that's that's absolutely inspirational. And we should also take some comfort that in Latin America we've seen uh, progressive governments winning in recent elections. The tropical Trump, for example, is gone.
1: Indeed, that is a major victory for humanity. The demise, the political demise of Bolsonaro, uh, a true blue fascist or true black, I should say, or brown fascist, um, a, a clear and present danger to not just Brazilian democracy but to the Amazon, to the indigenous people, a great ally of Donald Trump, of Modi in India, in India, of, of the inter, of the Nationalist International, as I call them. Uh, but let me also sound a warning here, Philip. Uh, this wave of progressive governments from Chile to uh, Honduras, to Brazil, um, it's a <laughs> I welcome it. But remember, there was another such wave 20 years ago. Uh, and that one was based on a very sound economic foundation caused by China. Because 20 years ago, when Lula was uh, president the first time, during his his first two terms, he could rely on China buying everything that Brazil was producing, from soya beans to small aircraft. Uh, So the whole of the Latin American continent received a major boost 20 years ago from Chinese growth back then. This time around, this is not happening. So all these progressive governments that are sweeping through Latin America are now facing a cost-of-living crisis, an energy crisis, a world that is stagnating, climate change, and they do not have the kind of backup that they had from Chinese demand 20 years ago.
0: In 60 seconds or less, Ukraine. We need
1: immediately a peace process. A peace process involving the United States, China, maybe India, uh, certainly the European Union, even though we have no idea who would represent us because we <laughs> we are headless. We have no representation the European Union. Um, and a peace treaty must be struck quickly to end this absolutely appalling bloodshed. Uh, I very much fear that this war is going to continue. It will become... A quagmire, a cross between Afghanistan and the Great War, trench warfare. Um, and I think that the basis of a decent treaty, one that leaves everybody slightly dissatisfied, but in the end, it is a good foundation for building peace would be the withdrawal of Russian troops to where they were before the 24th of February, um, Ukraine um, becoming neutral Committing to not being part of NATO, a kind of Good Friday Northern Ireland agreement for the Donbass area, where the two communities ill at ease with one another, uh, with guarantees from the United States, from the United Kingdom, from Australia, from the European Union, of such a rational resolution.
0: Yannis, thank you immensely for coming back to the program. Yannis Varoufakis, leader of the Democracy in Europe movement in Greek Parliament, and, of course, he wears any number of other hats.
1: ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.